Romans chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to preach the first 17 verses of Romans over the next few weeks. The first 17 verses of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. The most important book that has ever been written is the Gospel of Matthew. It was the first book that the Christians attached to the end of the Old Testament. We have codices. That's a fancy word for a book. We have codices where you have the Old Testament with Matthew attached to it. That was the first one because it was written to the Jews. It's very Hebrew in its thinking. So Matthew is the most important book ever written, probably because of the Sermon on the Mount and other things. But anyway, that stands alone. But if you had to pick a number two, I think you might have to pick Romans. This is it. We'll talk to you in a little bit more, a little bit about why that's so important. But let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Ruthie, are you ready to read for us this morning? I am so ready, honey. You sure look pretty today, baby. I'll tell you what, I like, I like that outfit. Look, that, that's nice. Yeah, a girl has to have some bling, right? <laughs> Something like that. A man has to have some boredom. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Okay, go ahead, no. go ahead, go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, church, it is so good to see you this morning. It is so great. I missed you last Sunday. I know you missed me, right? Good answer. Would you please stand for the reading of God's beautiful word? I'm reading from my favorite translation, uh, the New Living Translation, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sit out to preach the good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his early life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen to that. Would you pray with me, please? Father dear, as you look down on us, believers, those who... We just want to love you, Lord. We want to love you well. We want to represent you well. May we have open arms to those around us. For those here that are in the valley of despair, we know your, your arms are so strong. We know that no matter how low our valley is, that we can find you even deeper still. And those that might be here, Lord, that believe part of the time and part of the time they don't, Please, Lord, make clear your love to them. Amen. And may it shine from us, from our faces, our words, our actions. We can never, precious one, we could never be good enough, any of us. And why, why you chose to die and sacrifice yourself, I can never really understand, but I sure am thankful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the cross. Thank you for these people. Oh, precious one, I pray a blessing on each of them and on their week this week. 
May we shine for you. May people look at us and say, we'll know they are Christians because of their great love for us, for each other, and for you. In your holy, precious name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Dolly. I love you, too. I love you, baby. <clears throat> Before I preach from Romans, I want to talk about Romans. Paul was in Corinth, about halfway between Rome and Jerusalem. It was 58 A.D. 58 A.D. He had just collected a huge offering for the saints who were in Jerusalem. There had been a drought there and they were dying. And he would collected a big offering from the churches in Greece and he was going back to Jerusalem. He lands at Corinth, though, and he can't help but look to the northwest. And 800 miles right there is Rome. And it had always been his dream to go to Rome. But he had to go 600 miles this way to Jerusalem. And so here he is between the two, and he stops in Corinth, and he takes pen in hand, and he writes maybe the second most important book that's ever been written in the history of the world. Since Paul had never been there, had never met the people there, he included all of his major teachings in one book. That explains for you why Romans is always so important. Most people don't, don't understand that. They say, why is Romans so great? Why is it greater than the others? He'd never been there. The other churches, Corinth, Galatia, the other churches he'd been to. So he had taught them. He didn't have to share everything. But Rome, he'd never been there. So when he wrote Romans, he sat down and he put every one of his teachings in one book. So it is Paul at his best because it is Paul at his most thorough. One of the greatest preachers in Christian history, John Chrysostom, read Romans two times every week. Luther called it the masterpiece of the New Testament. Coleridge, the poet, says it's the profoundest book in existence. Godet, the Swiss theologian, said it is probable that every revival that ever happened among Christians will somehow be traced to Romans. Wow. And history has verified his analysis. About 400 years after Christ, there was a lady named Monica, who was a devout Christian married to an unbeliever. Their son, who was brilliant, a genius, had followed the father into debauchery, had fathered a child out of wedlock, lived with the child's mother 13 years without marriage, but had become a professor in Carthage, Africa. He was brilliant. But Monica began to pray that he would come to Christ. And one day, Augustine went to hear the great Ambrose preach. The sermon was very simple. Ambrose said, we all admire David. He's a great hero of history. Everybody admires David. We follow him into his sin. That's ordinary, but he came out of his sin with confession and repentance. That's extraordinary. And somehow that hit the professor. And he went home and he wondered about his life. He knew he'd followed David into sin. He went down about that, but did he need to come out of that sin? 
Days and weeks went by, and he was so troubled over his soul, he screamed out to God one day out in his courtyard. He said, Oh, Lord, this hour, make an end of my vileness. And there were children playing in a courtyard right next to his courtyard, right, right next door. There were two children, and one of them was uh, singing like a, a little chant to the other one, Take it up and read. Take it up and read it. Take it up, read. It's a little game that they were playing. And so Augustine, having screamed out to God, End it now. And hearing this child take him read, he, he walked over as fast as he could to the book of Romans that he had left open. And his eyes fell on chapter 13, verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and for the lust thereof. And so Augustine had to decide, will I continue to live in my terrible sin, making provision for the lust of my flesh, or am I going to put on Jesus? And Augustine chose Jesus and the rest is history. In the year 1500, there was a monk named Martin Luther. Martin Luther would fall down beneath his masters, the leaders in the monasteries. He would fall on the floor and he would cry out to them, My sins, my sins, my sins, give me God's mercy and yours. And they always gave him the same answer. You have to live in poverty, chastity, and obedience to be pleasing to God. He became a seminary professor of Bible in Germany, just miserable, always feeling guilty, trying to live in poverty and chastity and obedience, but still not finding peace with God. And as he studied the Bible, he came to the book of Romans. He became a master of the book of Romans. And he began to sense there was a contradiction here between what everybody had told him about if you're going to be right with God, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And one little phrase in the first chapter they kept coming back to haunt him. The just shall live by faith. Let me rephrase that for you so that you understand what it means. The ones who are just by faith are the ones who will live. See, we've said the just shall live by faith so long. It's like a well-worn coin. It's lost its edge. That's what it means. The ones who are right with God. That's what just means. To be right with God. You do it by faith and not by works. So Luther was really struggling with what he'd been taught and what the church was teaching and what he was understanding by this phrase, the people who are righteous by faith are the ones who will live. While he was in the throes of this, he went on a business trip to Rome. And Luther visited every shrine in Rome that he could find, seeking indulgences for his sin. They were taught, they were taught if you would do things, give money, and if you would uh, do things that the church told you to do, you'd have less time in purgatory. Purgatory is an old teaching, temporary hell. We don't believe it exists, but at that time, they believed. You go to a temporary hell, get your sins burned off, you pay for your sins, then you go to heaven. So you'd go to Rome, you'd do all these things, and you'd, do, you'd spend less time that way in temporary hell and purgatory. So he's been struggling all this time. I don't think that works is the way to be right with God. I just I, don't, I can't figure this out. And finally... He decided to go to the Sancta Sanctorium. That's Latin for the Holy of Holies. Oh, my goodness. Ooh. <laughs> okay. The holiest place on earth. Think about that. It was a staircase, 28 stairs, that the church had taken apart in Jerusalem and brought to Rome. And there were supposed to be the 28 steps that Jesus had climbed up to go to Pilate. And the Pope had promised nine less years in hell, in temporary hell for you, 
if you'd climb up the steps on your knees and pray the appropriate prayer on each step. So, Martin Luther, he started at the bottom. He had a little book of prayers. Turn to the next one. He got a little book of prayers trying to stay out of temporary hell. And somewhere in those steps, Martin Luther said, no, no, no. He stood up. And he said, no, it's not by works. You don't earn it. It's not poverty. It's not chastity. It's not obedience. The ones who are right with God by faith. They're the ones who will live. And he turned and walked down those steps. And the Reformation had begun. And now there are one billion, one billion of us who agree with him, in addition to the one billion Christians who do not, the one billion who can trace their heritage to a flight of steps. In the 1700s, John Wesley became a Christian. And he decided he would come to America, to the colonies, and win the Indians to Christ. That was his mission, he felt. So he got on the boat, and there was a terrible storm, and he was scared to death. But he noticed there was this group of Christians called Moravians, the Moravian Brethren. Water would splash over the boat, and they were just over in the corner praising Jesus, thanking the Lord. And Wesley wanted to know Jesus like they knew Jesus. He got to the colonies, failed miserably, one of the few failures of John Wesley's life, totally failed, completely. Got back on a boat to go back to England, knowing he was a failure, but he wanted to know God like those people knew God who had peace in the storm. So when he got back to London, he started seeking and searching. And one night he went to a place where a man was reading Luther's commentary on Romans. Of all things. A man was just standing there reading Luther's commentary about Romans. And John Wesley sat there and he listened and he decided it's the ones who are righteous by faith. Not works. You don't earn this. You trust God. You know him. And that's when he wrote in his diary, my heart was strangely warmed. You can go to London today, go to Aldersgate Street, you'll find an old, old house. And there's a little thing on the side, a little sign that the government of England has put there because the Wesley brothers were the ones who saved England while France was in its bloodbath. Another story for another day. Don't ask me about that. We're not going there today. All right. Plaque right here. It says, in this building, John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. They commemorated it. They know how important it was from the book of Romans. <sighs> One more. And then we'll... Now I'll preach. This is just fun time right now. I'm going to preach later. This doesn't care. We're not starting the clock until. And, and when you're the interim, you don't care anyway. So it doesn't matter. You know, nobody, what do you got to lose? Right, just, just preach, man. Preach, okay. When the 1900s began, Christians all over the world lived under a lie. They believed that the world was getting better and better and better. It was called postmillennialism. You in school, you remember the secular version, Manifest Destiny. They were the same thing. Postmillennialism was for believers in Christ that the world was getting better and better and better. And finally get good enough, then Jesus would come back. 
the manifest destiny. If you didn't believe in Christ, you just believe the world's getting better because of the American Revolution, the Civil War. So the world's getting better. Woodrow Wilson was a post-millennialist. His Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, was a post-millennialist. Both of them thought the world was going to get better and better and better. And World War I started, and we called it the war to end all wars because the world's getting better. This is it. We're going to end all war. It's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be wonderful. One day after a terrible battle, the most influential voice in the liberal world, a man named Karl Barth, is a professor. He walked across the battlefield. He saw the blood and the carnage. And he said, this doesn't match what we say we believe. Lottie Moon, Adonam Judson, Hudson Taylor, all the greatest missionaries in our history believed in post-millennialism. They went as missionaries because they believed they were going to make the world better and better and better and Jesus had come back. All of them in the 1800s. But Karl Barth stood in the middle of this battlefield and he said, something's wrong here. Christian nations fighting against each other. So he went back and he opened the book of Romans and began to read and he wrote maybe the most influential book of the 20th century, his commentary on Romans. And when this masterful voice of liberalism, this wasn't a conservative, like, oh, this is a liberal, he published his book and said, we've been wrong. We are sinners. We must be saved by Jesus. And it shook the theological world. There's power in this book of Romans. I just want to tell you that. Before I start preaching from it, I want you to know I'm praying that God will do in us what he's done for others through this book. This is a Holy Spirit anointed piece of writing. This is a man totally yielded to Christ. This is everything he knew about Jesus in one book. And I'm praying that God will use it in a powerful way. Now, it's time to preach. Go to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 1. Verse 1. Paul. That's as far as we're going to get for a few minutes. Stop right there. Next to Jesus, Paul is Christian history's most honored believer. Now, John the Baptist is the second greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus. But there's no one more honored and more respected than Paul next to Jesus. We think wonderful things about Paul, church starter, evangelist, Gentile lover. You're in church today because of Paul. If it wasn't for Paul, none of you would be in church today. He was the Gentile lover. He's the man that said it's okay for us to come in. Preacher, teacher, writer, champion of grace, missionary. But could I stretch your memory just a little bit farther back and remind you of what, you, what Paul was before he was all these great things? Self-righteous Pharisee. Maniac, persecutor, murderer. It's a miracle that Paul's name appears in the Bible in a good way at all. Now, he was, he, Paul was going to be mentioned in the Bible one way or the other. Either way, he was going in. He was either going in with the infamy of Judas Iscariot and Herod and Pilate, or he was going to be enshrined along with Peter, James, and John. Paul is one of the few people who's ever lived that had an excellent resume for a Jewish synagogue and for a pastor search committee. He had a perfect resume to work with the Jews. He had a perfect resume to be a Baptist, as long as the people never compared the notes to each other. He had both. Now, what happened to him? 
How did he go from being one of the worst to being one of the best? Go back to verse 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. You ready? Go back. Paul, a slave. Stop. Paul, a slave. After he had one of his great successes, Stephen had died. He was so thrilled he was going to go up to Damascus, 135 miles away. It would be like going from here to Jefferson City. He was going to find the Christians. He was going to haul them out. He was going to persecute them. He was going to kill them. He was going to get rid of them. But while he was on the way to Damascus, suddenly there was a bright light and it hit him and it knocked him down to the ground. And a voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, down on the ground, blinded by this light, down on the ground, he yells up into the light. He says, who are you, Lord? He knew whoever was the voice in that light was somebody that needed to be obeyed and live for us. So he said, Lord, Lord, who, who are you? Lying flat on the ground. And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then he said, now what will you have me to do? Paul instantly surrendered. Just like that. He immediately acquiesced. And from that first moment, he saw himself as a slave of Jesus. Hired helper? No. Voluntary attendant? No. Subordinate officer? No. Slave. Now, how is that possible? Nobody coerced him. There was no law passed. Nobody said it was necessity. He, he did it of his own free will. He did it because he wanted to. That's exactly why we all in this room, that's how we should feel Toward Jesus. We should live with a sense of personal debt. We should gladly say, I am a slave of Jesus. I read the story one time of a slave who was sold to an Englishman. In, the English, in England, slaves had been freed and they claimed to be the land of the free. And this slave, when he found out he'd been sold to an Englishman, said he would never obey such a hypocrite as that to come from the country that bragged about freedom. But when his new owner arrived, he said, I have bought you. To set you free. And the man fell at his feet. And said I am your slave forever. That's what Paul did. He hit the ground. And said I am your slave forever. That's what we all ought to do. We should be so grateful for what he's done for us. For what Jesus has given us. Everyone else we ought to hit the ground. And say slave. Slave just whatever he says. And whatever he wants. Now the Bible had an interesting way of identifying a slave that was a slave voluntarily. It's very interesting. Which one of you guys is brave? I want you to stand right here. One of you st stand right here. I want one person to stand right here. Come on, come on. Come on, Nathan, I see you. You, you look, you got that smile on your face. Turn around and face the crowd, all right? In the Old Testament, if you had a master that you loved so much that you didn't want to go out free when it was time for you to be set free, you would go to the tabernacle and the priest would take an awl. They would put your ear right up against a pole. And they would take this awl. And while one priest held it, the other one would slam it into the wall. And they'd pull out the awl. And there'd be a hole in the ear. Thanks, Nathan. Didn't he do a good job? <laughs> good job, Nathan. And for the rest of that slave's life, for the rest of that slave's life, he was always a witness to how great his master was. 
Interesting, isn't it? Always carried in his own body the evidence, I really serve a wonderful master. And this is what it means to be a Christian. You don't have a hole in your, but you live your whole life with people knowing you're a Christian. Everybody where you work knows you're a Christ follower. Everybody at school knows you're a Christ follower. Everybody where you exercise, they know you're a Christ follower. By some piece of jewelry, by a Bible, in, your, in the desk drawer. Everybody knows you're a Christian. You don't have to blow a trumpet. You don't have a hole in the ear, but everybody knows that you're not ashamed of your master. And that's what Jesus was saying here. And that's what Paul was saying here, that he had voluntarily become a slave of Jesus Christ. And to become a slave meant that you knew that there was a personality better than yours. That there was somebody above you that you needed to live your life for. Ah, yeah, the great poet, the lady Frances Havergal, she penned in one of her hymns, I love my master, I will not go out free. And that's how Paul saw Jesus. And so he's writing to a church located in the proudest city in the world. Let's talk about pride. Let's talk about pomposity. Let's talk about thinking you're better than everybody else in the world. And Paul says, I am Paul, an ambassador. I am Paul, a minister. No. To the city of pride, he said, I am Paul, a slave. To a city inebriated with its own lordship, Paul boasted of his slavery. This is so amazing. Slavery was the most despised vocation in the world. A slave possessed nothing. Not children, not wife, not even their own body. They owned nothing. The Jews, listen to me, the Jews said a a dog was of greater worth before God than a slave. The Greeks despised slavery. Did you know that the Greeks never, ever did this in worship? Not one time ever did a Greek bow before the gods. Not once. They refused to take the position of a slave before God. Kneeling the position of humility, they would never take. They thought of themselves as maybe lesser brothers of God, but they certainly were not slaves. And yet here's a man writing to the proudest city in the history of the world, and he says, I cherish and I desire to be known as a slave. He was saying somewhere along the way, I took a shovel, as it were, and I dug a hole And I put all my dreams, all my ambitions, all my plans in the hole. And I take my shovel and I fill them up. And no matter what I think or what I want anymore. Boy, it's a great picture of what it means to die daily. I die daily, Paul said. In other words, every day you get up and you just bury your dreams, your desires, your hopes, what you're thinking about. You look in the mirror and say, private reporting for duty, Lord. What do you want me to do? You just bury yourself. And he's proud of it. Now, the question is, who was the new personality? Who's the new slave owner? Back to the text. You ready? Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, 
a slave of Jesus Christ. Don't you think for one second that this is a binding statement, that this is a, something that, that cripples your life, that handcuffs you? Don't you think for one second Living for Jesus is something that drags you down. It gives you wings. To serve Jesus gives you wings. It doesn't give you chains. Paul knew what his master had said. His master had said, no one can serve two masters. No slave can serve two masters. And so when he said, I am a slave to Jesus, he knew wherever he spoke. First of all, he was saying, I I am free from slavery to sin. Sin will always tell you, Sin will always tell you that you're free. Sin will tell you you're always doing what you want to do. Sin will tell you that you have finally been set loose and it's okay to do what you want to do. All right? Okay? I submit to you that freedom to sin is tyranny. You dabbling in porn a little bit? Give it up for 90 days. Let's see. Let's just see how you do. Been drinking a little too much alcohol lately? You're kind of wondering. Maybe your family's even wondering. Give it up for 90 days. Let's just find out. Let's just see. Been getting a little bit too much marijuana lately to kind of get through the day, to make it, to hang on. You're saying, oh, nothing wrong with that. Well, give it up for 90 days. Let's find out whether you're a slave to it or not. You need to know. Because a person in sin is in bondage. Our master said, our master said, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. Our master said that. Don't you kid yourself for one moment thinking you can dabble in that stuff. That's where the chains are, not in Jesus. And Jesus has wings and has freedom. In sin, there's chains. Number two. Since Paul was a slave of Jesus, he knew he was free from things. A slave could own nothing, nothing. He has nothing to gain or lose material, materially. And when you know that everything you have belongs to God, I'll, in all my years at Second, I think one of the greatest lessons I learned, all those fundraisers we had to do, all the, giving extra to the Lord's work all through those 22 years, one of the things I had to learn was nothing that we own is ours anyway. You don't own anything. Nothing. Everything belongs to God. It's all His. And you are just a steward, which means you're going to have to answer to God for His stuff. It's not your stuff. That's one reason we have so trouble getting people to tithe, even though Jesus told us to tithe. I'm, I'm just stunned and amazed. Jesus told those Pharisees, you keep tithing. You take care of mercy and justice, but you keep tithing. Why do we have trouble? Because too many of our people really think they... Own the stuff. It's theirs. It's not yours. God gives nothing to you. Always remember, everything he gives you, he gives through you. It's on its way to somebody else. It's not yours. It's his. He's distributing. And you're in the distribution center. And the way that you know that you understand that, the way you prove that is you give 10% of what you have to the Lord. Very simple. Yeah, it's okay. You don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to figure this out. 10% of your income, you give to the Lord to show you know it's not yours anyway. It's all just passing through. You say, I'm not a slave to money. I'm not a slave to stuff. All right, let's tithe for six months and let's see. Let's just find out. 
3. Since he was a slave to Jesus, that meant he was not a slave to others. He was free. You know, a slave doesn't care what anybody else thinks. <laughs> Do you think a slave cared less about what somebody else, what the crowd thought? He's only looking one direction. That's to the master. His whole life, every, everything depends on the master. So don't, he's free. When was the last time you stood against the crowd? Let me make sure I understand. You live in a godless society. The movies are so unholy that you can't only go there. The language is so bad you can't even get through the credits without making it to the movie. You can't even get to the previews. You're surrounded by people who curse. And you're telling me that you have never stood against the crowd anywhere? That nothing ever happened at your workplace that you stood alone? Yeah, I remember. I remember when I decided to follow Christ at 15. I remember. I remember the laughter. It still hurts. It still hurts. But I had to know, even at 15, that I was not a slave to them. That I was a slave to him. And then because he was a slave to Jesus, he knew he was free from his own self. Your worst enemy is sitting in the chair you're sitting in right now. Don't you ever forget this. Your worst enemy is you. You have to know. Are you a slave to Jesus or a slave to yourself? I remember. Now, now follow me. Stay with me now. I gave up caffeine for a year. Anything wrong with caffeine? No, not particularly. But I just needed to know for sure. Am I a slave here or a slave there? I just had to know for myself. I gave up country music. Now, I still listen to country music when I'm driving. It keeps me awake. And, and I love those love songs. It makes me think about Ruthie. I love it. I just love it. But I basically had to give it up because it was, it was taking away in those songs. had some words that weren't good. Nothing wrong with country music. It's me. But I, I need to give it up to make sure I knew. I, 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 need, I needed to know, was I free from slavery to me? I had to give up television. Some of, you, some of you, if you gave up only one television show, you could read the whole New Testament every year. Just one, one TV show. Just one. You could read the whole New Testament every year. You have to ask yourself sometimes. Anything wrong with TV shows? No. No, it's okay. No problem. But at some point, you've got to ask yourself, am I a slave to me? To me or a slave to him? Twenty years ago last month, I had two heart attacks and a stroke. I weighed 50 pounds more than I weigh now. And I had to make a decision. Was I a slave to my food? Or was I a slave to him? Anything wrong with food? No, I love it. Oh, mercy, I love it. I, I, I'm crazy about food. Give me food. I love it. If I have to choose between a steak and a milkshake, I take both. It's great. All right. <laughs> All right. But at some point, I had to make a decision. It's the hardest thing I face in my life every day. There are days, folks, I want to eat the doorknob. True, it's true. But at some point, when you have two heart attacks and stroke, and you're 51 years old, and you're pastor of a great church, and you realize you might be ending your ministry because you're a slave to yourself rather than him. You got to, I'm just saying, sometimes you have to take something that seems harmless. You've got to find out, are you a slave to him, or are you a slave to yourself? And it's better to be a slave to Jesus than to yourself because Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. Would you climb on a cross and die for yourself? I doubt it very seriously. Slavery to a person who loves me more than I love myself. 
is freedom. <laughs> Being a slave to one who is more concerned about me than I, than I ever thought about me, that, that's freedom. Yeah, I'm almost done. Thank you. You're very patient. You're a very good crowd. I appreciate you. In the earliest days of the church, when we were persecuted so terribly, the Christians had a little symbol that they would use. They would uh, draw on the ground. If they were around people they didn't know, they'd draw an ark like this. They'd draw it in the sand, draw on a piece of paper, somewhere they'd draw it. And if the Christian was there, they would do the same ark mirrored this way. And when you put those two together, it looks like a fish. The first symbol that we know of of Christianity was a fish. The word fish is ichthus. Ichthus, the letters of fish in the Greek, are an acrostic. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so that's how Christians identified themselves with each other. One would draw the ark like this. Another one draw the other ark like this. That's how they would identify themselves. Out of that came the first motto of early believers. The first motto of early believers is found in Romans 10, 9. Jesus is Lord. It means Jesus is the master. During times of persecution, all you had to do to not be persecuted in the Roman Empire, all you had to do was go to a pagan temple once a year and say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. The Christians couldn't do it. Instead of saying Kaiser Curias, they would say Christos Curias. Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's very moving. That, I mean, that's touching, man. I mean, that would have put you on the ground. You just want to lay down and say, Lord, this, how do they do this? How, how do you do that? I don't understand. But I want to flip that this morning. I want to finish this message by reminding you of what the corollary to Jesus is Lord is. Jesus is Lord means I am slave. The book of Romans is about you being what you confess to be. God's still looking for slaves. Free from sin, free from peer pressure, free from stuff, free from themselves. Free. Jesus is looking for some slaves who will be bound to him in love. And here's the whole point of this message. If God could save and use Paul, he can save and use anybody, including you and me. Paul went from being lost to being found. He went from being wrong to being right. He went from being religious to being devoted. And that's where we are. So I finished with this question. In our heart of hearts, can we say, I am slave to Jesus and mean it. I am slave to Jesus and I mean it. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Put all your notes away. Put your Bibles away. Free your hands so that you can pray. Put your face in your hands. This is how I pray when I'm intense. I just bury my face in my hands. Take my glasses off. Get rid of everything and just 
Now pray. I am slave of Jesus, and I mean it. Can you say it? Say it to him. Say it to him. Jesus, I'm your slave, and I mean it. Can you say it? Say it to him. Now, while Christians do business with their master, may I speak to those who do not know Jesus? And a crowd decides, I know there are some here who do not know Jesus. And it's been a hard message. It's a tough message. It's rough. I'm preaching pretty hard to save people. It's pretty rough. But maybe there was something in there or something in the music or something somebody said to you this week that's caused you to decide you want to follow Jesus. You're ready. You want to become a Christ follower. You're ready. And if that's the case, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. Now, the prayer doesn't save you. We don't believe in magic. But sometimes your mind's going a thousand different directions. You just need to something. Lord, Lord, what do I say? What do I say? And if this prayer will help you say what you are truly sensing inside, now, don't make your stuff up. You, this, this is, if this says, if this is you, really. Then why don't you repeat this prayer silently as I pray it out loud. Here it is. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen.